Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Boy, a big day, a lot going on today, but let's start out with Senator Bernie Sanders running for president and, of course, representing the great state of Vermont. Senator, welcome back to the program. How are you, Tom? You and I, you know, for 11 years on this program, talked about financial transaction taxes, what used to be called the STET tax, the Securities Transaction right. Excise Tax. <clears throat> and I understand you're reviving this. Tell me about it. Uh, I am. And by the way, I want to tell you, as I go around the country, I keep bumping into people who say, how come you're not on Tom Hartman more often? We miss you. So oh, that's sweet. Maybe we can, uh, we can hook up a little bit more than we have in the past. Yeah, thank you. Look, what we have now, and uh, yesterday I introduced legislation with uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, and it deals essentially with national priorities. It says that at a time when Wall Street last year made $237 billion in profits, and these are the people that the taxpayers of this country bailed out after their recklessness and illegal behavior plunged us into this terrible, terrible recession. What we are saying is, when our country has so many needs, maybe it's appropriate okay. to put a uh, transaction tax on all of their high-frequency trading. If we do that, that brings in something like $2.4 trillion, that's with a T, over a 10-year period, which could begin to address many of the enormous problems facing this country. So you got, you know, entities there which are enormously powerful, enormously profitable. Are they engaged in high-speed trading, which has many serious issues attached to it? Uh, let's do what some 40 other countries around the world do, and that is have a, a transaction fee attached to that trading. Yeah, it seems like this would also uh, minimize the probability of wild crashes from computer exactly. trading and things. Exactly. McDonald's is uh, coming under fire, has been for quite some time, and I know you've been supportive of those efforts in the fast food industry. You want to tell us what's up with that? Yeah, well, what's going on there is literally today, there are workers around the country who employees of McDonald's who are on strike. And I want to just really applaud the courage of many of the workers at McDonald's and people who are involved in the fight for 15, because they have done incredible work over the last five years. You know, Tom, think back five years ago, and if somebody said, you know, we've got to raise that minimum wage 
to a living wage 15 bucks an hour when the federal minimum wage is seven and a quarter an hour you know people thought that was really crazy you remember that oh yeah yeah and think about what they've done they went out on the streets and they told the american people what is obviously true is that nobody can live on seven and a quarter an hour you can't live on eight nine ten bucks an hour you know people are spending half of their incomes on housing uh... you know they don't have any health care which is the case for many mcdonald's workers so these guys in fight for fifteen and the SEIU union uh, started that fight and said, look, people need a living wage. And what has happened since, and, and these guys deserve all the credit for that, and we, you know, this is something I campaigned on in 2016, and obviously we're still campaigning on it, is to raise that national minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour and make sure that workers have the right to join a union, which is equally important. And as a result of their efforts, Seven states in this country have raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour over a period of a few years, which means millions and millions of workers have seen a significant increase in their wages. The House Education and Labor Committee a few months ago passed out of that committee legislation for a federal minimum wage of 15 bucks an hour, something that I have done here in the Senate. We have legislation that does the same. So the good news there is that we are making progress in the fight for a decent living wage and the right of workers to join a union. We are also working with the unions on legislation that I have introduced called the Workplace Democracy Act, which understands that the middle class of this country and the working class of this country does not grow unless we grow the trade union movement. We've got to make it easier for workers uh, to join unions, not harder, and that's what that legislation does. Uh, you, you know, Senator, as you point out, I mean, the financial transaction tax, nobody was talking about that prior to four years ago, other than you and me on this show. $15 an hour, people even four years ago were saying, what, that's crazy, that's way too much. You have, I would say, pretty much single-handedly changed America over the last four or five years, and I am just, I, I'm just blown away by it. I believe that you were one of the co-founders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Yes, and, I was. Yes, yeah, and, and we're going to have Pramila Jayapal on the program later today. Today, uh, Mark Pocan's on regularly. They are the two co-chairs now. Rokana drops by from time to time. Your legacy so far is astonishing. And you've been fighting for health care for years and years. Medicare for all. Tell us where that's at. Well, I'll tell you where it's at. Last poll that I saw, which is consistent with many other polls, is that a strong majority of the American people understand that for senior citizens now, we have a pretty good program, needs improvement. It's called Medicare. It's the most popular health insurance program in the country, Tom, and it has just a whole lot of support. And what common sense suggests, if you have a program that is working well, that works cost-effectively, it should be expanded, and that we should join every other major country on Earth in guaranteeing health care to all people. You know, as, uh, you lived in Vermont for a while, and you live near the Canadian border, and you know that in Canada, people go to the doctor, any doctor they want, they don't have to take out their wallet. They have a heart transplant. They have cancer surgery. And I was up there a couple of years ago talking to the doctors, talking to the patients. You have heart surgery. You know, in America, we run up a bill of tens and tens, of about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Canada, you don't have to take out your wallet because it is seen as a human right. And it's paid for out of the tax base. And in Canada, they end up spending 50%, 50% per capita of what we spend on health care. So bottom line here 
is that the function of healthcare should not be to make $69 billion in profits for 10 pharmaceutical companies last year, while one out of five Americans cannot afford the medicine they need. The function of healthcare should not be to give the CEO of Aetna a $500 million bonus for engineering a merger with CVS. The function of healthcare should be to provide quality care to every man, woman, and child in a cost-effective way, and that's what Medicare for All is. So we have to break through the system where the insurance companies make billions in profits, the drug companies make billions in profits, and 34 million Americans have no health insurance, even more are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments. We need a rational system which functions, which focuses on the needs of ordinary people and not just the uh, stockholders of drug companies and insurance companies. Yeah, totally, totally. And I, I think I would be remiss uh, with regard to the news of the day if I didn't ask you your thoughts on this whole uh, theater that Trump did yesterday with uh, Schumer and Pelosi and ongoing dysfunction in the White House. Nancy Pelosi this morning called for an intervention by his family or his staff. This is serious stuff, is it not? Uh, it is. You know, and if it wasn't the fact that we were two and a half years into Trump's administration, I mean, just think if any other president invited the leaders of the opposition to talk about the enormously important issue of infrastructure. We have to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. And if he walks in, starts screaming at people, and then walks out and holds a press conference about how he's not going to deal uh, with this issue, I mean, you're dealing with, you know, somebody who is certainly not fit uh, to be president of the United States, who is in many ways moving this country rapidly into an authoritarian form of society. And I beg, I really do think that, that in this particular moment, it is absolutely imperative for Republicans, you know, who I disagree with on every issue, but who actually believe in democracy, who do not want to see the ending of the separation of powers in this country, where Congress is treated with the respect that it deserves being a co-equal partner in government with the judiciary and the executive branch. They have got to start speaking up and tell this president that we're not going to move in an authoritarian direction. And I think in the House, uh, you've got the Judiciary Committee, and I think that they have got to begin an inquiry into impeachment, not necessarily move to impeachment, but begin the inquiry to see whether the grounds are there. You cannot have a president who tells his administration we're not going to uh, testify when we're called upon by Congress. We're not going to obey sub subpoenas. This is a movement toward authoritarianism. My fear is that if the Democrats go in that direction, they have to be able to walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. Because if all we do is talk about Trump, 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 and his horrific and reactionary policies and his personal behavior, I think in some ways that could work to Trump's benefit. And we can't do that. We've got to talk about the needs of the American people. We've got to talk about health care. We've got to talk about education. We've just outlined a very specific and comprehensive plan on how to improve education in this country. We've got to talk about climate change and the threat to the entire planet and how we're going to transform our energy system away from fossil fuels. So it's a very difficult moment. And I think there are some folks out there who are so disgusted and outraged by Trump's behavior, all they want to talk about is Trump. Now, I understand that. His behavior is outrageous. 
But on the other hand, we're going to have to balance the need to investigate, to determine whether we should go forward with impeachment at the same time as we stay focused on the needs of working people. Raise that minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Cut prescription drug prices in half. And that's exactly what you know, I am campaigning on. Uh, we can't continue to pay twice as much uh, for, for uh, prescription drugs as, as do the people of other countries. Yeah. So it's that tight line. And Nancy Pelosi's job is not easy here. We ought to stay on the issues that the American people are concerned about. We have to hold Trump accountable. And that, in my view, is the direction we have to go forward. Extraordinary stuff. Senator Bernie Sanders running for the Democratic nomination for president. Senator, thank you so much for dropping by. And thanks so much for the great work that you're doing every day for this country. Okay, well, thank you, Tom. And keep up the great work. Great, great talking with you. Thank you so much. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, I mean, you know, days, weeks, months, you've heard me over and over and over again talk about how ever since Louise and I moved to Oregon, where pot is legal, and uh, you know, we've been using it at night to get to sleep. And the, the problem is, most of the country, that's not the case. It turns out that one of the ingredients in pot is called CBD, cannabidiol, and it's the thing that is kind of the most effective painkiller, and I've found that it's the thing for me that, that helps me sleep really well. And you can get CBD f out of hemp rather than marijuana, and it's legal in all 50 states. It doesn't get you high. It's non-intoxicating. It's non-toxic. You can't overdose on it, just like you can't overdose on pot. It has anti-inflammatory pro pro properties as well as you know, potent pain-relieving pro properties. And the brand that Louise and I use is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. This stuff is 100% organic, highly concentrated. There's no additional additives. It's grown right here in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp, so it's in its pure and simple form, and it's legal, and it doesn't get you high, but it does really work well. Go to New Leaf Naturals. That's N-U Leaf. NewLeafNaturals.com. That's N-U Leaf naturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. That's spelled T-H-O-M. So go to New Leaf Naturals, NULeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get your 30% discount. It's substantial. You're going to love this stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is on the line with us, a U.S. Congress member from Washington's 7th District, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the senior whip of the Democratic Caucus, and serves on multiple committees, including the House Budget Committee, House Judiciary Committee. Jayapal.house.gov is her website. You can tweet her at Rep Jayapal, R-E-P-J-A-Y-A-P-A-L. Congresswoman, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with you. It is so great to have you with us. You are co-sponsor of the current Medicare for All in the House. You're also a member of the Judiciary Committee. I'd, I'd like to get into both those issues. First of all, where is Medicare for All at in your mind? Well, we're super excited. I'm the lead sponsor of it. We just got up to 110 House members who have sponsored the bill, and we're going to be introducing a couple more in a couple weeks. We historically had the first ever hearing on Medicare for All in the House, and it was in the Rules Committee. It was about almost a month ago now, and it was phenomenal. It went all day. Some stellar witnesses, doctors who talked about what Medicare for All would mean, patients, Adi Barkin, who did an amazing, amazing job, um, and economists who showed exactly what the business case is for 
um, and the need to move to a Medicare for All system. Yesterday in the budget committee, um, we had a, it was, it was not a hear, it was sort of a hearing, but just with the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, did a report on what components need to be considered within a single payer healthcare system. It didn't focus just on my bill, but what was interesting is it had some really wonderful points making our case for why we have to move to a Medicare for All system. And we were able to get a number of members to really point out how healthcare today costs, you know, $31 trillion. And that's just if the healthcare costs were to stay the same, but they're going to go up to $6 trillion a year, which means that over the next 10 years, we're going to spend about $52 trillion on healthcare, 18% of our GDP right now simply increasing. And yet, we have 70 million Americans who are uninsured or underinsured and tens of millions more who cannot afford insurance and are using GoFundMe as their insurance plan. So Medicare for All is, um, has more momentum than I have ever seen. Obviously, presidential candidates are talking about it. And Americans across this country are saying, you know what, I need health care that allows me to go see a doctor when I get sick that allows me to have comprehensive care that cuts out the private for-profit insurance companies that are making a profit on our health care, that reduces prescription drug prices dramatically so all these pharma companies don't keep making profit off of health care. And this Medicare for All bill is the first bill. It's 125 pages, and it is the first bill in the House of Representatives to actually give a clear plan of how we transition to that system. Now, you have candidates for the Democratic nomination for president who are supportive of Medicare for all, but you also have a number of them who are saying, you know, this is just too big. There's too much here. It's, it's, we're talking you know, trillions of dollars at the end of the day. And really, we just need to do this incrementally, step by step. Let's start out with a public option. You know, that thing that Joe Lieberman yeah. blew up back when they were negotiating Obamacare. How do you respond to them? Well, what I say is that, uh, look, I understand that those bills are just trying to make things a little bit better, but they do not fix the underlying problems of a system that has been based on profit instead of patients. If you actually want to provide universal care and you want to make sure that the costs are contained, then you have to address the insurance companies and the pharma companies. You cannot have a multi-payer system and still get out the administrative waste that is contained about 25 to 30% of our costs in healthcare today are because of administrative waste. And a lot of it is caused by the profit-making motives of these companies, but also the fact that there are all these multiple payers. And, you know, ultimately the results, you would think that if we spent the most money by almost double of any peer industrialized country in the world, that we would actually have the best outcome. Well, that is so not true. We have, we are number one in infant mortality, number one in maternal mortality. We are the only industrialized country in the world where life expectancy is actually going down and not up. And so we have to get to the root of the problem. And, you know, with all respect to the other programs that are out there, a public option would not 
address this. And in fact, what it would do is probably drive the most vulnerable people into the public system. They are probably the most expensive. And then it would make that system even more unaffordable. So it doesn't address kind of the deep-rooted problems. And my bill does. It, it addresses, you know, gives comprehensive care, as I mentioned. It's the first bill in the history, and now Bernie Sanders has followed with the long-term care piece as well that we put into this bill. It's the first bill to address long-term care. So care for folks with disabilities, care for seniors. It, of course, repeals the Hyde Amendment so that women can get reproductive care that they need. And it really addresses the cost of pharmaceutical drugs. This is something that Mark Bocan, who I know is a regular on your show and is my co-chair, really good friend here in Congress, we have been focused with Lloyd Doggett on bringing down the cost of prescription drugs and really focused on Lloyd Doggett's bill to do that. We have incorporated Lloyd Doggett's bill into this Medicare for All bill so that we can not only negotiate pharmaceutical drug prices, but we can actually have the stick of saying, if you don't negotiate with us, then we have the ability to bring competition into the market by licensing generics on that same drug. Wow. Wow. That's that, that is a, that is a huge stick. Now, you are also on the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee is like the big deal committee right now in Congress because that's the place where impeachment has to originate if it's going to happen. Um, I've heard some folks say that if the committee opens and not necessarily an impeachment hearing, as in we're going to impeach the president, but rather an inquiry into whether there needs to be impeachment um, or if they open an inquiry into the possibility however it's phrased, that once that happens, that that committee and, and the House of Representatives itself acquires basically grand jury powers, powers that they wouldn't have otherwise had, or certainly the ability of Trump or the administration to claim that Congress is snooping where they don't belong because there's, quote, no legitimate legislative purpose, end quote, just gets totally blown out of the water, even if it's before a Trump-appointed judge, presumably, because Constitution is so just transparently clear that not only does Congress have the right to impeach, but also that the president loses his right to pardon people during times of impeachment, which is something that he's apparently been dangling you know, over uh, Paul Manafort and tried to dangle over Michael Flynn and, and Michael Cohen uh, for some time. Is that true? Does, does Congress acquire extra powers if they do that? And where, what's your take on this? And what's your read of your colleagues' take on all this? Well, yes. Congress does acquire extra powers by starting a formal impeachment inquiry. I have to say, I mean, being on the Judiciary Committee, I have now read the Mueller report three times. I appreciate your reading the Mueller report. I think it's critically important for, for Americans to see what is in it. It is stunning. Um, there is no question in my mind that the president has committed impeachable offenses, has obstructed justice. Um, but we have to be able to get all of the facts and we have to be able to lay out those facts for the American people to see. And what is happening now is this president is stonewalling us at every turn. He has refused to comply with legally authorized subpoenas, his administration. Um, Barr has refused to provide us with the Mueller report, the unredacted Mueller report, and all of the underlying information. He has stopped witnesses from coming to testify before us. Most recently, that was Don McGahn, who was set to come and testify before us until the night before the testimony. The president said, I am not going to let him come. And he claimed, Tom, this ridiculous, I mean, the letter 
from the Office of Legal Counsel basically made an already refuted argument that senior presidential advisors would have absolute immunity from testifying before Congress. This is the same argument, as you may remember, that George W. Bush made in 2007 when Harriet Myers was told to come and testify before Congress, and George W. Bush went to court to say, no, she can't because she has absolute immunity because she's a senior presidential advisor. And the court very clearly actually repeated in the decision twice by the judge. The judge said, you have no legal basis to say that. Yeah, Nixon tried to claim this, too. Correct. And the reality is Congress is a co-equal branch of government. We like to joke on the Judiciary Committee that we are actually first because we're Article One. Our powers are Article One powers. And so if you say that one branch of government no longer has authority over another branch of government, you destroy our system of checks and balances. And to me, that's the difference between a democracy and a dictatorship. In in a democracy, we have these checks and balances built in because no one person can have absolute power. In a dictatorship, that person makes all the decisions. Nobody has accountability over that person. And that cannot be who we are as Americans. And it is that serious. And so I have said, I came out on Sunday, actually, and said that if Don McGahn did not come and testify before us, then because the president was obstructing his testimony. This is ongoing obstruction. This is not obstruction in the past that's in the Mueller report. This is ongoing obstruction. If Don McGahn didn't come and testify, then I said I thought it was time to start an impeachment inquiry. I have already been joined by over half of the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee. This is not just a progressive issue. We have frontliners who are coming to us and saying, we were elected to uphold the Constitution. And so we are united as a Democratic caucus in saying we have to hold the president accountable. The question is how? What is the best way to do that? And we think there need to be multiple strategies, one of which is an impeachment inquiry. Remarkable stuff. Representative Pramila Jayapal, representing the 7th District of Washington, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and a senior whip with the Democratic Caucus and serves on multiple committees, including House Budget and House Judiciary, jayapal.house.gov, and Rep. Jayapal is the Twitter handle. Congresswoman, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you. Great speaking with you. Pramila Jayapal. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. Charles in Prescott Valley, Arizona, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Yes, hi, Tom. I'd like to run some information by you and get your opinion. I spent some time doing some research 
on this. I believe that Congress or the House has overlooked using a uh, law enforcement organization that can further an impeachment investigation that isn't under direct control of the DOJ. If the uh, congressional committees, the House committees, declare they are performing an impeachment investigation, and as you have mentioned many times, that this makes these folks acquire a judiciary function. Right. They acquire power, uh, Article Three powers in addition to their Article One powers. Right. Now, the U.S. Marshal Service, their primary duty is not is to serve the federal judiciary. And uh, I believe they're not under really? total control or direct control of the, the executive branch uh, of the DOJ. Are you a lawyer, Charles? Me? No, just did some research online. And they can serve subpoenas. They can arrest and confine individuals by order of the court. And they can seize and collect materials and information related to it an investigation. I think this is an avenue that's been totally overlooked. And Nancy Pelosi wants all the evidence to stack up. Well, they can get it all at once, just about, without going through a court procedure. Who is... I know virtually nothing about the Federal Marshal Service, other than that TV well, I show I saw years ago about you know people you know, being hit out in places. So who's in charge of it? Where, what is the agency, and who's the director of that agency, and who appoints that director? I don't know. They've been out of the argument, and they're they're kind of looked as uh, functionaries. Although they, you know, they go out and they do. Uh, uh, they also they also uh, are in charge of investigating uh, uh, prison malfeasance and uh, right. And they run the Wits. Property. Is it called the Witsig program? The 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 people who are you know hiding because they were informants on the mob kind of thing. Yeah, witness protection program. So they'll also do that, also. But it's been it's stated online that their uh, primary uh, objective or control is through the federal uh, judiciary. That's fascinating. I'll ask Bob yeah. Nay about that. He may know something. I, I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to spend and, some. And the reason I, I'd like to, you know, get your ideas about this is that you do have relationships with some congressmen, Connor and Pocan. Let me let me dig into it, Charles. You know, it, it may be, it may not be, so we'll have to find out. Let me dig into it. Thanks a lot for the call. That's a fascinating suggestion. Let's find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, the former congressman from Ohio, Bob Nay. Bob, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you, Tom. So before we get into the news, I think you heard a caller that we had during one of our previous segments who said that his understanding was that the U.S. Marshal Service isn't strictly a second or an Article II branch, that it actually exists to serve the Article III branch, the federal judiciary, and therefore might be able to play a role in an impeachment hearing. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't, Tom. All I knew was the the federal marshals when we after nine one one we had to go through DOJ, I think it was, to uh, utilize them for some security issues we had. Okay, so they in, so then in all probability they are an Article Two branch, and to get their help, Congress would have to go to Bill Barr. I would assume. Yeah. And I could be really wrong on that, but sure. I know we had to go to DOJ when Tenny Hoyer and I were with House administration with some you know security issues. Right, I got it. Okay, so what's up in the world today, Bob? Well, the famous meeting that was three minutes long. Right, yesterday in the White House? 
Right. Uh, you know, we were talking about that all day today. But it's a whole series of things, too. Obviously, two court decisions this week were not uh, in favor of the Trump administration, and one being the Deutsche Bank, and then, of course, the other uh, right now, as well as Fargo, uh, is, is one bank, and there's a second bank that are turning over financial records as we speak, and uh, all the media stories said were, you know, thousands of pages of, of financial records, of course, that would be for the Trump organization before he became uh, president. Now, I, we're assuming also that New York State uh, would, would have access to some of those materials, uh, too, because New York State has a separate investigation going on. Right, but basically, but, uh, oh, yeah, the investigation, I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, sure, New York State, which, uh, again, is more perilous, actually, in a sense, for President Trump than a uh, federal investigation right. at this point in time right. because of the fact that you can't use executive privilege. Uh, it would be pertaining also to the family who are also in the White House that run the business, and if something happened, you know, uh, in the end, there can't be pardons for state well, and in addition right. to that, I mean, he can tell Bill Barr, who works for him, at the, you know, as the head of the Department of Justice, do this or don't do that. And Bill Barr may or may not do it, but he can still tell him. He can't tell the attorney general of the state of New York anything. Uh, correct. And, you know, over the years, there's always been this, you know, theory that, you know, Department of Justice is totally separate from presidents. And that, that technically, you know, they may not get the direct word from presidents, although this, this one they may have, but they still have a, a, an inner function, let's face it, yeah. with the executive branch that appoints them, whether it's written or unwritten, you know, it, it's out there. Yesterday in federal court, a lawyer asked uh, a representative of Deutsche Bank, why were you guys loaning money to Trump when literally no other bank in the world would touch him? And we don't know the answer to that question. But if the answer to that question becomes, well, because Deutsche Bank has already pled guilty to money laundering and paid a, a huge fine. And if the answer is, well, that was part of the time when we as a bank were behaving like a criminal enterprise and we were hooking up with criminals like Trump and Kushner's. And so that's what it was. I mean, if that comes out, you know, obviously it would be done in a flowery legal language. But if that comes out, what do we do? Well, you know, Maxine Waters, the chair of the financial institutions, Tom, who was my ranking member when I chaired the housing subcommittee, uh, she has always had a certain suspicion about the Deutsche Bank. And a lot of people said that, you know, she was just saying things, and, but she's always had suspicions out there about their activities, and she's tried to dig into it. Now she's chair of the, of the financial institutions committee. So information that will flow out. Now there's a, uh, you know, a, a aspect and a facet that, of course, the Judiciary Committee under Chairman Nadler has, but also Maxine Waters, I am sure, will dig into the uh, information coming uh, on Deutsche Bank in two aspects. One, mon money laundering period, and second, the connection with Trump and why the loans were issued by a, a German bank, you know, right. instead of uh, some other bank somewhere in the world. And, now, and so that's closing in. And, of course, the president is in total warfare now. He took on Tillerson, too, his former secretary of state, called him, uh, I think, dumber than a rock, yep. because Tillerson didn't really make, um, honestly, if you read the comment, it wasn't uh, where he said Trump was dumb. What he said was, 
Putin was more prepared for the meeting. And right. one would expect after a couple of decades, Putin would be more prepared for a meeting than probably anybody. Yeah. You know, well, he and knows he, what he's doing. I mean, the, you know, the, he's 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 a smart guy, and he and he's and he's running right. a big country, and you don't get there, right. you know, by accident, unlike Trump. Right. <laughs> so, right. Or and with so, a little help from so your even, friends. Even if he's questionable, he does know history and, and the history of the world, et cetera. So sure. that was a mild comment, but Trump went back at him severely, just as the reaction. You know, with what Nancy Pelosi said. And of course, Speaker Pelosi has a balance in her caucus. There's, you know, a, a more and more cry of impeachment. And hers was a statement, which is understood in politics. After coming out of closed door meetings, too, it's a statement about what she feels the president's done wrong. Anybody right. could understand that, but that obviously hit a nerve. Yeah, she also up. sort of uh, indirectly questioned his manhood. You know, maybe he's just not up to it, right? Um, that's got to make him she crazy. She's got to battle back. Yeah, there you go. Bob Nay with Talk Media News, the author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day in your calls. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Talk media for the sane among us. Yes, we're still here. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading from the Mueller report. This is uh, page 38. The intrusions into the DCCC and DNC networks. Part B, implantation of malware on DCCC and DNC networks. They're talking about these units of the uh, GRU, the Russian version of the CIA. Unit 26165 implanted on the DCCC and DNC networks, two types of customized malware known as X-Agent and X-Tunnel. Nimicats, a credential harvesting tool, and RAR.exe, a tool used in these intrusions to compile and compress material for exfiltration. X-Agent was a multifunction hacking tool that allowed Unit 26165 to log keystrokes, take screenshots, and gather other data about the infected computers, e.g. file directories and operating systems. X-Tunnel was a hacking tool that created an encrypted connection between the victim DCCC slash DNC computers and GRU-controlled computers outside the DCCC and DNC networks that was capable of large-scale data transfers. GRU officers then used X-Tunnel to exfiltrate stolen data from the victim's computers. A bunch of the stuff in the uh, footnotes, by the way, on page 38 is uh, deleted or redacted. Page 39. To operate X-Agent and X-Tunnel on the DNC and DCCC networks, Units 26165 officers set up a group of computers outside those networks to communicate with the implanted malware. The first set of GRU-controlled computers, known by the GRU as middle servers, sent and relayed messages to and from malware on the DNC-DCCC networks. The middle servers, in turn, relayed messages to a second set of GRU-controlled computers labeled internally by the GRU as the AMS panel. The AMS panel, redacted, served as a nerve center through which GRU officers monitored and directed the malware's operation on the DNC-slash-DCCC networks. The AMS panel used to control X-Agent during the DCCC and DNC intrusions was housed on a leased computer near Redacted, Arizona. Redacted, redacted. The entire rest of the page 39 is redacted. Page 40. The Arizona-based AMS panel also stored thousands of files containing key logging sessions captured through X-Agent. These sections were captured as GRU officers monitored DCCC and DNC employees' work 
on infected computers regularly between April 2016 and June 2016. Data captured in these key logging sessions included passwords, internal communications between employees, banking information, and sensitive personal information. Item number C, theft of documents from DNC and DCCC networks. Officers from Units 26165 stole thousands of documents from the DNC and DCCC networks, including significant amounts of data pertaining to the 2016 U.S. federal elections. Stolen documents included internal strategy documents, fundraising data, opposition research, and emails from the work inboxes of DNC employees. The GRU began stealing DCCC data shortly after it gained access to the network. In, on April 14, 2016, approximately three days after the initial intrusion, GRU officers downloaded RAR.exe onto the DCCC's document server. The following day, the GRU searched one compromised DCCC computer for files containing search terms that included Hillary, DNC, Cruz, and Trump. On April 25, 2016, the GRU collected and compressed PDF and Microsoft documents from folders on the DCCC's shared file server that pertained to the 2016 election. The GRU appears to have compressed and exfiltrated over 70 gigabytes of data from this file server. The GRU also stole documents from the DNC network shortly after gaining access. On April 22, 2016, the GRU copied files from the DNC network to GRU-controlled computers. Stolen documents include the DNC's opposition research into candidate Trump. Between approximately May 25, 2016 and June 1, 2016, GRU officers accessed the DNC's mail server from a GRU-controlled computer leased inside the United States. All the footnotes, by the way, at the bottom third of the page are redacted. During these connections, Unit 26165 officers appear to have stolen thousands of emails and attachments, which were later released by WikiLeaks in July of 2016. Item B, dissemination of the hacked materials. The GRU's operations extended beyond stealing materials and included releasing documents stolen from the Clinton campaign and its supporters. The GRU carried out the anonymous release through two fictitious online personas that it created, DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0, and later through the organization WikiLeaks. 1. DC Leaks. The GRU began planning the releases at least as early as April 19, 2016, when Unit 26165 registered the domain dcleaks.com through a service that anonymizes the registrant. Unit 26165 paid for the registration using a pool of Bitcoin that it had mined. The DCLeaks.com landing page pointed to different tranches of stolen documents arranged by victim or subject matter. We're reading from the Mueller report. We're up to page 41 here. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading the Mueller report. This is from page 43 about the GRU, the intelligence agency within the Russian government. The GRU continued its release efforts through Guccifer 2.0 until August 2016. For example, on August 15, 2016, the Guccifer 2.0 persona sent a candidate for the U.S. Congress documents related to the candidate's opponent. On August 22, 2016, the Guccifer 2.0 persona transferred approximately 2.5 gigabytes of Florida-related data stolen from the DCCC to a U.S. blogger covering Florida politics. On August 22, 2010, the Guccifer 2.0 persona sent a U.S. reporter documents stolen from the DCCC pertaining to the Black Lives Matter movement. 
the GRU was also in contact through Guccifer 2.0 persona with, redacted by Bill Barr, a former Trump campaign member, redacted by Bill Barr. In early August 2016, redacted by Bill Barr, Twitter's suspension of the Guccifer 2.0 Twitter account. After it was reinstated, GRU officers posing as Guccifer 2.0 wrote, redacted by Bill Barr, via private message, thank you for writing back. Did you find anything interesting in the docs I posted? On August 17, 2016, the GRU added, please help me if I can help you anyhow. It would be a great pleasure to me. On September 9, 2016, the GRU, again posing as Guccifer 2.0, referred to a stolen DCCC document posted online and asked, redacted by Bill Barr, what do you think of the info on the turnout model for the Democrats' entire presidential campaign, redacted by Bill Barr? Responded, pretty standard. The investigation did not identify evidence of other communication between redacted by Bill Barr and Guccifer 2.0. Number three, use of WikiLeaks. In order to expand its interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the GRU units transferred many of the documents they stole from the DNC and the chairman of the Clinton campaign to WikiLeaks. GRU officers used both the DC leaks and Guccifer 2.0 personas to communicate with WikiLeaks through Twitter private messaging and through encrypted channels, including possibly through WikiLeaks' private communication system. Subset A, WikiLeaks expressed opposition toward Clinton campaign. WikiLeaks, and particularly its founder Julian Assange, privately expressed opposition to candidate Clinton well before the first release of stolen documents. In November 2015, Assange wrote to other members and associates of WikiLeaks that, quote, we believe it would be much better for the GOP to win. Dems plus media plus liberals would then form a block to reign in their worst qualities. With Hillary in charge, GOP will be pushing for her worst qualities. Dems plus media plus neoliberals will be mute. She's a bright, well-connected, sadistic sociopath, end of quote. In March 2016, WikiLeaks released a searchable archive of approximately 30,000 Clinton emails that had been obtained through FOIL litigation. While designing the archive, one WikiLeaks member explained the reason for building the archive to another associate. Page 45, quote, We want this repository to become the place to search for background on Hillary's plotting at the State Department during 2009 to 13. Firstly, because it's useful and will annoy Hillary, but secondly, because we want to be seen as a resource and player in the U.S. election, because it may encourage people to send us even more important leaks. Section B, WikiLeaks, first contact with Guccifer 2.0 and DC leaks. Shortly after the GRU's first release of stolen documents through DCLeaks.com in June 2016, GRU officers also used the DC Leaks persona to contact WikiLeaks about possible coordination in the future release of stolen emails. On June 14, 2016, DC Leaks sent a direct message to WikiLeaks, noting, quote, You announced your organization was preparing to publish more Hillary emails. We are ready to support you. We have some sensitive information, too, in particular her financial documents. Let's do it together. What do you think about publishing our info at the same moment? Thank you. And the matter that follows that has been redacted by Bill Barr. Around the same time, WikiLeaks initiated communications with the GRU persona, Guccifer 2.0, shortly after it was used to release documents stolen from the DNC.
On June 22, 2016, seven days after Guccifer 2.0's first releases of stolen DNC documents, WikiLeaks used Twitter's direct message function to contact the Guccifer 2.0 Twitter account and suggest that Guccifer 2.0, quote, send any new material stolen from the DNC here to us to review, and it will have a much higher impact than what you are doing, end quote. On July 6, 2016, WikiLeaks again contacted Guccifer 2.0 through Twitter's private messaging function, writing, quote, If you have anything Hillary-related, we want it in the next two days preferable, because this DNC is approaching and she will solidify Bernie's supporters behind her afterwards, end quote. The Guccifer 2.0 persona responded, Okay, I see. WikiLeaks also explained, we think Trump has only a 25% chance of winning against Hillary, so conflict between Bernie and Hillary is interesting. End of quote. Item C, the GRU's transfer of stolen materials to WikiLeaks. Both the GRU and WikiLeaks sought to hide their communications, which has limited the office's ability to collect, that would be the uh, special counsel's office, to collect all the communications between them. Thus, although it is clear that the stolen DNC and Podesta documents were transferred from the GRU to WikiLeaks, and then the whole rest of that page has been redacted by Bill Barr. It's the Mueller Report. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home's collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Over at Daily Kos, Joan McCarter is just laying it out, and she does it so well. I'm not even going to try to do a better job. I'm just going to tell you what she had to say. There's a, a new story in the Washington Post about Elizabeth Warren, right? It reads like whoever wrote it thinks it's a hit job. Seriously. They're going to take a job on Elizabeth Warren. Why? Because she once was a high-priced lawyer. Seriously. And she was also a law professor. <laughs> but anyhow, okay, so here's Joan McCarter over at Daily Coast. Wow, big scoop there, Washington Post. Brace yourself for this one. Senator Elizabeth Warren is running for president, worked in her profession as a lawyer before running for public office, and, oh, my God, made money for that work. She did it while also teaching the headline sneers, working on, quote, more than 50 legal matters, charging as much as $675 an hour, end of quote. Where did they get this massive scoop about a smart woman with a good job who used her expertise and her smarts and effectiveness to get paid the going rate of a really good lawyer? Quote from the Washington Post. Warren's presidential campaign released a, f a list of 56 cases on her website on Wednesday night, end quote. Back to Joan McCarter. Pretty sneaky of her, huh? Disclosing all that lawyering and money-making for the world to see on her own campaign website. And you, can you believe what she said on the website? Quote, 
When she represented the interests of asbestos claimants, her work was described as advocating for victims. End quote. That's from the Washington Post piece. Oh, my God. Back to Joan McCarter, which seems like a very good description for representing the interests of claimants. Scoop. Presidential candidate correctly describes her work in a previous job in a way that will appeal to voters. This is still Joan McCarter. Apparently, there's now a new standard for women running for president from the traditional media. A lady law professor interested in advocating for workers is supposed to be like a nun, take a vow of poverty or something, no matter how good she is at her job. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, by the way, weighed in with a tweet. Breaking news, lady had a job, got paid more than me. And then Ocasio-Cortez says, nice work. Now do the amount of Wall Street, big pharma, she's talking, you know, sarcastically to the Washington Post. Nice work. Now do the amount of Wall Street, big pharma, and fossil fuel presidential candidates accepted over their careers and how much they're taking now. Yeah, how about that? Pete Buttigieg was asked about Donald Trump in a, uh, I believe it was a podcast with the Washington Post. This is what he had to say, and this is just, I mean, it's so, it's so nice. This is the benefit of having a whole bunch of people running for president as Democrats. It's why having a whole bunch of people running for the Republican nomination four years ago actually worked to the benefit of the Republican Party and helped put Donald Trump in the White House. Because every single time any of them got covered, they took a hit at Barack Obama and very often at Hillary Clinton. Well, now, every single time a Democrat gets interviewed, they're taking a hit at Donald Trump. Here's what Pete Buttigieg had to say. I have a pretty dim view of his decision to use his privileged status to fake a disability in order to avoid serving in Vietnam. And I think that's exactly what he did. And then he, he went on, he says, look, I don't have a problem standing up to somebody who was working on season seven of Celebrity Apprentice while I was packing my bags for Afghanistan. This is somebody who I think it's fairly obvious to most of us took advantage of the fact that he was the child of a multimillionaire in order to pretend to be disabled so that somebody else could go to war in his place. Wow. Put the knife in, right? Put it in deep. Okay, remarkable stuff. Meanwhile, a banker with a bank in Chicago, his name is Stephen Koch, and the bank is the Federal Savings Bank of Chicago. They have uh, disavowed his activities, but he was high up enough in the bank that he was able to have that bank, a little tiny bank, loan 16 million bucks to Paul Manafort Essentially, in exchange for getting a position, Stephen Kalk had a position in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. He was the economic advisor to Donald Trump, right? Looks pretty good on your resume, right? Except now he's just got indicted yesterday afternoon by the Southern District of New York for ignoring internal standards and lying to regulators. Why is it that all the people around Donald Trump, or so many of the people around Donald Trump, are either obvious and demonstrable liars, you know, Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Sanders, etc., or that they're in jail. I mean, this guy's campaign chairman is in jail. His personal lawyer is in jail. In the case of Paul Manafort, he's in jail for stuff that goes beyond Trump. In the case of, of Michael Cohen, the astonishing thing is that Michael Cohen is sitting in a federal prison right now for paying... Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal to not talk about the affairs that they had with Donald Trump in the months before the election. In other words, trying to cover up the affairs. This is, this is the Donald Trump who yesterday said, I don't do cover-ups. hate <laughs> Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, right? I don't do cover-ups. He just pays off women who, can you, do you get this? This is, this is bizarre. 
And I think Nancy Pelosi nailed it this morning. She said somebody in his family, on his staff, or in his cabinet needs to stage an intervention. She says she is worried about the nation. She is worried about the president. So we'll see. I may be coming to your city soon on our book tour for the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. I'll be in New York, Washington, D.C., Portland, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis. Here I come. More information is available at TomHartman.com. You know, by the time Hitler had taken over Germany in a way that was unreversible, that was probably the mid-1930s, by the time that happened, most Germans were still debating whether or not Hitler you know, should be the chancellor and, and what about the government and why don't they do something and why doesn't the parliament hold him and, you know, et cetera. By the time Mussolini had taken over Italy, the people were still having, I mean, have we passed the point that I'm talking about? Phil in Sun City, Arizona, fill your thoughts. Um, the Constitution, in its first handful of words, tells us what to do. The Constitution also describes a force that's greater than the three branches of government. The first lines of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. Right. What's going on is unjust. We are the greater branch of government, whether they believe it or not. Oh, we the people. And the Yes. That's right. And the way we overcome them is by organizing and becoming uniform. And by becoming uniform, I mean just like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. We become easily identifiable to each other. By You mean by like the brown shirts did in 1933? Okay. That was a voluntary you know, civilian force. A voluntary, but a peaceful one, Tom. I'm talking Peace Army. I'm not talking brown shirts. Yeah, I'm but, but I'm telling you, if you raise a Peace Army, you say, okay, everybody who opposes the president, go out in the streets and wear blue jeans and a denim shirt. And what are you going to have? Those, You're going to have a whole bunch of skinheads out there with guns. The, let them come. Let them come, Tom. Yeah. No, Phil, Phil going down this road, that, you know, I get you it know, that the people are supreme according to our Constitution, and that by that logic... The action that we should be taking is not showing up in the streets. That's civil war. The action we should be taking is voting him out. I'm totally down with that. 16 ways to Sunday, yes. And that may end up being the only thing we can do, is vote him out. And that being the case, we need to do absolutely everything we can to create as much unity in the Democratic Party and get this guy out of office and the rest of his enabling Republicans with him, the whole bunch of them. But, Phil, I'm not willing to go down the road of we need to be out in the streets by way of confrontation, by way of basically a military or show of force. I'm not going there. I'm sorry. I don't think any of us should. James in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Hey, James, what's what's on your mind? I seen this coming back when they wanted Barr to come and testify. They were talking about a subpoena. I said, if he doesn't go, they've got to ask him to arrest himself. Exactly. And I agree with you that all of Congress is spinning in their seats, wondering what to do. A wise man once said the Constitution is just a piece of paper. That's George W. Bush. Bush yeah. yeah. I know that Nancy Pelosi has this small little police force. They may only have jurisdiction in the House, but that's only because the law says they only have jurisdiction in the House. Since Barr and the President are 
thumbing their nose at the law. I'm sure that her little police force isn't very strong, but, you know, California, Illinois, maybe New York would send a dozen or two dozen marshals apiece. Now, wait a minute, James. The minute you do that, you're back to the Robert E. Lee scenario. Robert E. Lee said, Lincoln is illegitimate. We are not going to put up with it. And boom, we were in a friggin' civil war. We can't do that again. Tom, exactly. But you just said earlier on your show that are we headed for a coup? We're not headed for a coup. The coup happened in 2016 on November 2nd, and it is every American's right and responsibility and duty to overthrow anything in any way they can a foreign James, once again, when anybody starts using language about overthrowing the government of the United States, you are talking about sedition or treason. And that is is just not what's, A, it's not what's going to happen. You're not going to get anybody going along with it. And B, it's against the law. And C, it threatens to take us back in the direction of the Civil War, which would be the very worst thing that could happen. James, I, I need to move along, but thank you for your contribution. Gus in Chicago. Hey, Gus. You've already answered the question because of the fact that both the judicial and legislative branches have handcuffs because they don't have law enforcement power. Also, I'd argue there's a certain level of lack of integrity, particularly on the justice and a little bit on legislative. But the big issue is we should take basically an example of what's been going on in Brazil, the teacher strikes in West Virginia and Oklahoma, South Korea a couple years ago, is peaceful demonstration, mm-hmm. and that actually created demand by the legislator, by the military and all the forces, basically to say there's no more confidence in the government, you must step down. Right. The South Korean We're seeing the edge of this example. with the yellow vest movement in France with Macron. South Korea, Romania. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with peaceful uh, demonstrations. And, I, I, and you know. Yeah, just like what's going on now, but it's going to have to be John and Jane Q. Public out on the street, peacefully and legally marching and demonstrating, basically saying, this man, which you already know as a con man who got in through voting. So, so do you think that is going to be enough to convince Bill Barr that he should follow the law? I don't know Bill Barr, but it sure as heck is going to force the military, the law enforcement, and maybe some elements in the Senate to say, Mr. President, you have no more support, basically, if you want to stay inside your own. Now you're going, again, to this thing of, you know, the military is going to save us, or law enforcement's going to save us. You know, I don't think anybody's going to save us. I think we've got to save ourselves. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.